You're listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gadsden Podcast. Today's message from Pastor Colt Hudson is part of our current sermon series through the Gospel of John. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you. Thanks for listening. Well, Brandon knows I'm a sucker for brethren we have met to worship. Uh, I absolutely love getting up and preaching after it because of the part where it says, uh, um, will you pray for us while we try to preach the word? And uh, that's always just been a fun one for me, uh, and so I, I greatly appreciate that. Thank you, worship team, for leading us this morning in choir. We're so thankful to have the opportunity to gather together today and worship our Lord and to hear his word. So this time, go ahead and be turning, if you will, to John chapter 13, verses 18 through 30. Again, it's John chapter 13, verses 18 through 30. And as you're turning this morning, I want to just take a few moments to introduce this topic by telling you that throughout the study of history, humanity is captivated by great stories of betrayal. In 44 BC, on the Ides of March, Julius Caesar was assassinated by his closest friends and colleagues. It was in this moment, as he was stabbed to death, that he said to his friend, Et tu? Brute? You too, Brutus? It was a story of betrayal of the highest level, and it lived on in Shakespeare's play about the life of Julius Caesar. And uh, throughout this week, we've seen it remembered in uh, various social media and, and um, things like the History Channel and stuff like that have been doing specials about this famous betrayal. In U.S. history, there's perhaps no more famous traitor than Benedict Arnold. In 1780, after rising to the rank of Major General in the Continental Army, Benedict Arnold had married into a Loyalist family and decided that he was going to surrender West Point, the fort under his command to the British, in exchange for 20,000 pounds sterling. The plot was uncovered and Arnold fled to British lines where he was then given command of the British American Legion to wage war against the men he once commanded. This is treason. But as famous as the stories of Julius Caesar and Benedict Arnold are, they cannot compare to the most famous traitor of all time, the biblical traitor, Judas. And so today, let's see what we can learn and what the text tells us of this most famous betrayal in John 13, verses 18 through 30. I'll be reading from the ESV, but you follow along in your translation. Verse 18 says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. 
So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you do, or sorry, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Dear God in heaven, we come before you today, Lord, thanking you again for this time of worship. Lord, we thank you for the fact that uh, we've been able to sing together. Lord, we've been able to pray together. We've been able to uh, read and look at what we believe, confessing it together. And so, Father, as we have done these things, we recognize that we are uh, truly here to worship you, to glorify you, to exalt your name. But Lord, as we come to this point of looking into your word, Father, we pray that you would remind us that all of Scripture, Lord, it has a purpose. It's breathed out by you. Lord, then it teaches us, it rebukes us, it corrects us, it's profitable. Lord, your word tells us that its purpose is that we may be equipped, we may be complete. We may know exactly what you have for us and what we are to do. And so, Father, as we approach this text today, Lord, we pray that you would teach us more of your character. Lord, you would help us to trust your plan. Father, you would call us to rely on your grace alone. And Lord, today we pray that you would truly equip us, you would shape us, you would mold us and convict us. That we might be the people that you would have us to be. And so, Father, we do pray that this message would be yours rather than my own. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we began looking at this uh, scene of the Last Supper in John 13. And um, we saw uh, this just very amazing act of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. We saw the beauty and the power in Christ's example. We know that Jesus knew he was going to the cross to atone for the sins of his people. right? He knew, again, this this bloody, painful death that would be awaiting him. He knew that he had loved the disciples to the end and that he was going to be betrayed. And he knew that he had all authority. And yet Jesus chose to serve. That service last week we saw demonstrated that true obedience is not just saying Lord, but it's rather following his example and serving. Because if service is not beneath Christ, then it is not beneath us. But there was, the Bible tells us, one person at the meal that night who felt that it was beneath him. There was one person at the meal that night who frequently said, Lord but did not follow the example. That person was Judas, a disciple, someone who had walked with Jesus, heard him teach, who'd seen the miracles. In our text today, we clearly see that Jesus identifies Judas as the one who will betray him. And Judas is truly the quintessential traitor, right? 
the most famous betrayer of all time. He's the first person people think of when they think of betrayal. And what's so interesting is that the Bible clearly characterizes him as such from the very beginning. We see that this is not a surprise, as we said last week, right? Uh, It's not just like all of a sudden, out of nowhere, here Judas is doing something crazy. But rather, the Bible is clear throughout the Gospels that Judas is the betrayer. Every time that Judas is mentioned in Scripture, he has the title of betrayer associated with his name. It'll tell us, Judas, the, the son of Simon Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus. And when we see this, we recognize that the Scripture is very clear that this is who he is. Furthermore, in every list of the disciples, uh, Judas is always mentioned last, or he isn't mentioned at all. Judas is the ultimate traitor in human history. And today we're going to learn from his treason. We're going to learn from the betrayal. And we'll see what I find to be some encouraging truths from this text and the greater biblical teaching on Judas. And so uh, today I just want to show you three simple things. First of all, that again, his treason is foreseen here in verses 18 through 26. This treason is foreseen, right? Up to this point, Jesus again has clearly indicated that he will be betrayed. Remember that uh, just a few verses earlier, back in verse 2, we saw it says that during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Right? This, during this meal, back in verse 2, we see that this is identified. In verses 10 and 11, we see him twice identified here. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, Not all of you are clean. So just in last week's message, right, we have multiple moments where we see that Jesus knew what was going on And what's going to happen? But here in verse 18, Jesus gets even more clear. And we imagine the disciples had to be feeling, again, just all kinds of different ways here. Because they've been in this moment. Jesus has washed their feet. He's told them that they're to serve. He's given them this example. And he's just told them, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Right? That's... We, we finished that last week. Blessed are you if you do them. And, of course, they're all probably saying, well, we're going to do them. We're going to be blessed, right? But then in verse 18, Jesus says, I'm not speaking of all of you. Again, Jesus is clear. I'm not talking about all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. Jesus is saying clearly, in this room full of disciples, I know whom I have chosen and I am not talking about all of you. Now we need to realize here, naturally and of course, Jesus knows whom has been chosen before the foundation of the world. He knows who God has sovereignly chosen as his disciples, just as he knows who has been chosen to follow him. So foreknowledge here is a big deal. Because here we see that Jesus says not, I know who has chosen me, but I know whom I have chosen. And this shows us that Jesus' foreknowledge here is rooted in his sovereign plan. And naturally, this has big implications for everything in our life. 
But here specifically in regard to Jesus and his going to the cross, we see that Judas' betrayal was known ahead of time. It was foreseen. It was part of God's plan. And one way we know this is by Jesus' statements that the scripture will be fulfilled. What is he saying? Well, in verse 18 here, we see he says right after, uh, but the scripture will be fulfilled, that there is a, this is a quotation. Jesus is quoting something. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Well, what Jesus is doing in verse 18 is quoting Psalm 41.9, which says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Jesus is quoting the scripture here. Jesus quotes a psalm that is a direct prophecy according to Jesus for what is about to happen. What's interesting is that this is not the only prophecy about what Judas was going to do. Right? Zechariah also prophesies about Judas' betrayal just as specifically. Zechariah 11 verses 12 through 13 says, Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. The Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. This is, a, again, a prophecy of what would happen with Judas, specifically getting this 30 pieces of silver and then throwing them in the temple. And so what we see here is we know that God's word is perfect and good. And we see that obviously in these Old Testament scriptures that are years before this, that Judas' betrayal was predicted because it was part of God's plan. Jesus said, I'm telling you this now so that later on you'll believe I am he. I am God. In order to fulfill the prophecy of Psalm 41 that he had just quoted, Jesus then identifies Judas with a morsel of dipped bread. Now, I kind of think it's, it's funny how the disciples react to this news, though, right? Because Jesus is saying here, listen, one of you is going to betray me. And the disciples, they, they seem to not know what's going on. One of us is going to betray Jesus, and so they're kind of looking at each other dumbfounded. And, and I love this here in verse uh, 24 where it says Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus what he was speaking. Right? You can just kind of see Simon Peter, they're like, you know, asking him what's going on. They're looking at each other dumbfounded. Simon Peter motions to John. John leans over toward Jesus real close and says, Lord, who is it? And Jesus identifies Judas as the betrayer again by dipping this morsel of bread. But when we look at this, we're often tempted, again, to think that Judas's actions somehow serve to mess things up. A lot of times uh, when we come to this, whether we do this intentionally or not, what people will do is they'll read this passage and they'll think, well, you know, everything was going good for Jesus, and then all of a sudden Judas walks in there and messes everything up. That's not the case. What Judas did was evil and wrong. But in God's infinite wisdom, God uses this to send Jesus to the cross, which was the plan from the beginning. So don't hear me say that Judas is right in this. He most certainly is not. Again, the Bible tells us it would have been better for him not to have even been born. But God uses that awful act to send Jesus to the cross to save 
his people. It is foreseen. We need to remember that everything in our life, whether it be goodness and wonderful things or someone betraying us, is seen and known ahead of time by God. And he's working everything together for our ultimate good and his glory. We love that passage, that verse from Esther, which says that perhaps I was born for such a time as this. You are not here in this place, in this time, on accident. Again, just as God knew exactly what was going to happen in this moment with Judas and with Jesus, He knew exactly what was going to be happening now. What will be happening ten minutes from now? What will be happening tomorrow? In a few weeks, in a few years, all the way to eternity. And so when God had you to be born in this time, He knew that you would live through the crazy things that you lived through, Right? Uh, just this week, you know, is kind of the, the three-year anniversary of the whole COVID stuff. And uh, I was thinking back about that. God knew that we would live through that, right? He knew what would happen. And he knows we'll live through. God only knows what else. But when God puts you where he puts you, he knew exactly what you would face. And he puts you there anyway in his sovereign wisdom. The old church sign, I remember, used to say, right, I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know who holds tomorrow. It's this idea that we need to remember. Everything we face, the Lord knows. And he is wise, and he is good, and he is perfect. And so he has put us here in this time for a purpose. And that purpose is not shaken regardless of what goes on around us. So it's not our job to question God's plan, but it is our job to trust that his plan is perfect. And I often think that, again, the disciples must have had a hard time doing that, right? Especially during this time that we're now thinking about in the gospel where Jesus has been betrayed by Judas, right? That's about to happen, and and the crucifixion has occurred. All of those things are happening. And these disciples must have been scared out of their minds. They must have been confused when Jesus was crucified. They thought it was all over because they were only looking at their temporary, immediate circumstances and not seeing the bigger picture of what God was doing. Yes, it is awful that Judas betrayed our Lord, but I am thankful that God used that to accomplish his purposes. Because it is by this betrayal that Christ would go to the cross and bear the punishment for our sins. So we need to see that this treason is foreseen, right? This, this traitorous activity uh, by Judas, it's not something that's, again, out of the blue. It's not random. It didn't catch God off guard. Just as nothing catches God off guard, but it was foreseen. The second thing I want you to see here is, is taken specifically just from verse 27. And this is that the power of Satan also cannot thwart God's plan. The power of Satan cannot thwart God's plan. Verse 27, we see here that then after he had taken the morsel, this is Judas, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Verse 27, though, introduces a new character to the text. That is Satan, right? And Satan enters into Judas. And obviously, we recognize that there was satanic and demonic opposition here. 
The devil, with his limited knowledge and power, thought he could pull one over on God. He enters into Judas to betray Jesus. And yet, again, we see that God's purposes were still accomplished. We often, again, think of the devil as the opposite of God. We've talked about this recently at different points. And the problem is that people often see the devil as the equal opposite of God, and he is not. The devil does not have this same amount of power or authority. The devil is a chained dog, and he has limited power. He's not sovereign. God is. He's not all-powerful or all-knowing. God is. So in this moment, we, we see Satan lashing out and using Judas to betray Jesus, thinking that he is one, when in reality he is destroyed and defeated. He just doesn't know it yet. We so often fear the devil. And we're not called to fear the devil ever. We're called to resist him and he will flee. We're called to be watchful and stand firm because he is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But we are not to fear him. We are to fear God alone. Nothing the devil does can stop God's perfect plan. Just as with Judas, God used that to win the victory. What the devil thought would defeat God is the very thing God used to win the victory and redeem his people. But even here in our text, we see Jesus as still commanding control over the enemy. I love the the temptation accounts of Jesus where the devil is tempting Jesus in the wilderness. And at the end of this, right, Jesus is very clear. He says, be gone, Satan, and immediately what happens? The devil's gone. Well, we see a a degree of that here. Jesus says, what you are going to do, do quickly. And what happens? He immediately went out, verse 30 says. Christ here again is is still showing that he is, again, possessing all authority on heaven and earth. The devil gets going. In, In the story of Job, God sets the restrictions for the devil, and the devil has to ask permission to mess with Job. We need to remember that as much as the devil likes to roar like a lion, it is God who is in control and it is God who is sovereign over all. Just as there is not a single molecule outside of God's will, the devil cannot change his plan. He can't do it. The plan was for Christ to redeem his people by dying on the cross and taking the punishment we deserve because of our sins before a holy God. And Christ gives us his righteousness so that we are now made right in the eyes of God and can be reconciled to him. That plan was fulfilled and the devil did nothing about it and instead was put to shame. And so we need to remember that God's plan, it can't be thwarted or messed up by the devil. This is God's plan and it is good. And so as we go about our weeks and our days, we need to remember that God's plan for you will not be thwarted by the enemy. This doesn't always mean that the plan for you will be to have, for you to have fun and no problems. Again, we ask Job and Jesus about that. But it means that he will again work everything out for our ultimate good and for his glory. As believers, we need not fear the devil. Rather, we are to resist him and to stand and he will flee. The third and and final thing I want to show you from this text this morning is that traitors are driven by selfish gain and pride. We see this here in verses 28 through 30, and then we'll also be looking at Matthew 26, 14 through 16. 
The disciples, they still don't get it. Right? They thought Jesus was telling Judas to buy some stuff for the feast and the poor. Judas was the money bag holder. Right? This is the other way that we see him classified. Judas not only is the betrayer, but he seems to serve as the de facto treasurer for the disciples. Right? He's the one who holds the money bag. And everywhere they go, he would be the one who would either be distributing it to the poor, he would be the one who would go and purchase what they needed. So he's the betrayer, and he's also the money bag holder, which is a wonderful combination. And we remember back to that story of Mary using that oil, right, that perfume to anoint Jesus' feet. And Judas was outraged, right? So why wasn't this sold and given to the poor? And we remember that the Bible says that he wasn't really interested in the poor, He was interested in the fact that this perfume could have been sold for 300 denarii, which was over a year's wages, probably her life savings, and he could help himself to what was in the money bag. And so Judas helped himself to what's in there, but in this moment he was mad that Jesus had rebuked him and he was missing out. And again, getting his hands in the money. We talked about how in that story truly Jesus is worth everything right we remember in this moment Mary she's saying Jesus is worth everything that's obviously not how Judas saw it in Matthew 26 we see that immediately after that encounter immediately after the the anointing immediately after the rebuking of Judas here we see that Judas does something Matthew 26, 14 through 16 says this. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. From that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Judas walks in there and he says, uh, What will you give me? You see, we recognize that treason, right, betrayal, much like all sins, are driven by selfishness and pride. What's in it for me? What do I get out of this? And ironically, the amount that Judas sold Jesus out for is a pretty paltry sum. Ironically, we we think about 30 pieces of silver and most of us would be like, man, that sounds like a pretty good chunk of change right because we're not necessarily familiar with it estimates today uh, place like if you had 30 pieces of silver today it'd be worth about 250 dollars based on the value of silver if we go at it a different way and we estimate it based on conversion rates then it could be as much as 15,000 but that's the highest estimate that we see right so worst case scenario could have been worth a couple hundred bucks best case scenario few thousand dollars 30 pieces of silver though and and we see some kind of hints biblically that this was not worth a large vast sum because it had implications under the mosaic law 30 pieces of silver was the price that was to be paid to a master if his slave had been killed and was to be buried right so if someone was working 
with an ox, and the ox gored, your ox gored someone else's slave, then you'd have to pay them 30 pieces of silver to cover the burial of the slave. 30 pieces of silver was the amount it cost to bury a slave. And I just believe that that's very thought-provoking as we think about what Judas is doing here. Selling out the Christ who's going to die. So Judas goes in asking, what will you give me? And they offer him this small amount and he takes it. Judas doesn't seem to be negotiating though, right? Judas was like, 30 pieces of silver, you can do better than that, you know. They're like, best I can do is 30 pieces of silver. That's not what's happening. He's not trying to decide if betraying Jesus is worth it. It seems that he's just trying to see how much he can get out of what he's wanting to do. What's so beautiful about Matthew's account is, again, that Mary gave everything and said Jesus is worth it all and spared no expense. But Judas said, what will you give me as if anything was worth it? Because Jesus to Judas is worth nothing. And it paints a a very profound picture. Mary, who we recognize would be a, a true and legitimate follower of Christ, she said Jesus is worth everything. The betrayer says he's worth nothing. And truly, that's it, right? I mean, the, the words to the lukewarm church in Revelation are pretty clear that there's not really a place for middlemanning here, right? It is to be truly all or nothing. Jesus is worth everything to us, or he's worth nothing. But as we look at this, we, we often look at, at Judas and we say, how could you betray Jesus? You walked with him and heard him teach and you saw the miracles. How could you do this? And yet we realize that so often we commit treason. We sell Jesus out for a few minutes of pleasure or for a few minutes of popularity. We sell Jesus out for money. Yes, we sell him out for everything under the sun. So sadly, we will betray Jesus to run to sin so fast. And we need to realize that, again, sin is not just us doing some little thing. Rather, uh, R.C. Sproul called it cosmic treason. Every sin is an act of treason against a holy God. Traitors are driven by selfish gain and by pride. They only care about what looks good and what feels good and what is the best benefit for them in the moment. But that is not what we are called to be. Rather, we're to be people who say Jesus is worth everything. But it's so easy to look at our life and say, I have been a traitor. I've been an enemy. How many times have I sold Jesus out? But if you look at your life and you say, I am an enemy of God, then take heart for there is hope. Romans 5, 6 through 10 just speaks so powerfully to us when we realize that we have sinned, that we have fallen short. Romans 5, 6 through 10 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Listen, Christ is in the business of reconciling enemies of God. Making them sons and daughters of God. Christ died for people who were his enemies. And God's love is shown in the fact that he died for people who betrayed him who were enemies to him, who hated him. What love is this? And now that we've been justified by his blood, if you're a believer, if you've, been, you, you've turned from your sin, you've repented of it, you've placed your faith in Christ, you follow him, if you're, now ju- if you're justified by his blood, how much more? It says, shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? We don't experience the punishment of sin anymore because Christ took it. And if while we were enemies, he saved us by the death of his son much more. Now that we're saved, shall we continue? Right? Shall we be saved by his life? This is again referring to some sanctification as well. Christ died for people who were his enemies to make them his friends and children of God. And so if you're an enemy of God, know that you must repent of your sins. But if you repent and turn from sins to Christ and you believe in him and throw yourself on his mercy, he is just to forgive. But we need to realize, what is the end result of Judas? There'll be more on this as we continue to preach through the gospel, but the the end result is that he dies by suicide. And the Bible says, again, in Matthew, that it would have been better for him not to have been born. He's cursed. Listen, the traitor who dies in his treason is as doomed as Judas. But the enemy of God who turns from his sin, places their faith in Christ, is saved. That's the hope And so today we are calling you, turn to him today. Turn from your traitorous ways and walk with Christ. Walk with Christ. But if you're a believer in Christ, we need to trust his plan and know that nothing, not the devil, not traitors, not death, nor life, nor nothing, can thwart God's plan, and therefore we need to start walking around boldly living for Christ. See, a traitor who has been redeemed should understand better than anyone else the grace of God. It should be important to us. We ought to live like it is. And so we invite you If you're a sinner, come today, turn from your sins, and follow him. If you're a believer who is saying, I need help living this out, 
That's the beauty of the church family is that we are in this together. We pray for one another. We walk together. So if you're interested in joining our church, we would invite you to come and be a part of what we're doing here. But recognize that it is all of God's grace. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Dear God, we come before you today, and Lord, we thank you so much that while we were still your enemies, Lord, while we were sinful betrayers, Lord, you sent your son to die for us. Lord, he took the punishment. He died a criminal's death. Lord, he died taking the punishment and the wrath that we deserved. But Lord, we know that he did not remain dead, but Lord, that he was resurrected. Lord, that he lives even now at your right hand. And so, Father, we place our faith in him. Lord, we call those today who, are, who have never placed faith in him to do that. And Lord, we ask that you would just draw them to yourself. Lord, we pray that your will would be done and that we would glorify you in all that we do and say. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would move in our midst now, having your way. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gadsden Podcast. We would love for you to join us on campus for worship Sunday mornings at 1045. We look forward to seeing you. Have a great week.